You're listening to Through Help and Back. Through Help and Back is a podcast focused on mental health, addiction, treatment, recovery, and all things related to personal improvement and wellness. Don't worry, we're not here to talk about problems without solutions, and we're definitely not here to talk about struggles without success. So come with your problems, leave with our solutions. Welcome back, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Through Help and Back. Uh, very happy to be with you guys today. Uh, my name is Jason Pratt, CEO of A New Behavioral Health and therapist for a couple of years, more than I like to admit, but it's uh, we're in the double digits and counting. So uh, as you guys know, because you're here, Through Help and Back is a, a podcast focused on issues related to mental health addiction, recovery, self-improvement, um, all from a positive solution-focused perspective. Uh, we like to say, come with your problems, leave with our solutions. Um, that's something that we're going to really focus on today in terms of solutions, because we may talk about something that is very near and dear to your heart. I know as a parent, uh, it's very near and dear to my heart as well, and that is issues related to children um, and adolescents. Uh, we have Dr. Jamie Arnoff with us here today. Uh, she is a licensed clinical psychologist. Uh, she is an expert in issues related to families and adolescents and children. She brings a wealth of experience across a variety of issues. Uh, we're going to talk about the, the good, the bad, and the ugly, so to speak, when it comes to dealing with kids and families. So, uh, Dr. Jamie, so glad to have you. Welcome. Thank you for being here tonight. Thank you for having me. Yeah, we were, we were talking. We're, we're very lucky to be inside. We're both on the East Coast right now. And we're battling some environmental stuff. So how, how are you guys doing with that? Are you guys okay up there? Yeah, we're doing okay. It's cloudy outside. There's a haze. Of sorts. We get to New England and you're in New York and we're here for like uh, the beautiful scenery and the weather and the culture. And like now we're hit with these weather advisories and, uh, you know, another adjustment we have to make on the heels of, of COVID and all this other stuff. So uh, you, you're OK, though, you're thriving and surviving and all that. I can do what I can. <laughs> I get, I, luckily, I get to do a lot of my work inside. So it kind of works. It is fortunate. It's funny because uh, we talk a lot about like vicarious trauma and the emotional toll that being a helper takes. But, you know, I lived in Texas. We're not in the oil fields, right? I lived in Ohio. We're not out bailing hay. I mean, we do get to work inside. There are some perks as well. Mm -hmm. So I gave a very poor introduction to your work. Would you like to introduce us to the work that you do and the background and kind of what, what got you here and all the stuff that you're involved in? Give us your, your history. Sure. Um, I've been working with children, adolescents, and their families for a little over a decade at this point. I have a private practice that I co-founded with my best friend, BFF Therapy in Beacon, New York. So I currently am specializing in providing therapy services to adolescents and young adults, many of whom are presenting with symptoms of anxiety, depression, a lot of them high risk. So they're having a history of or actively experiencing suicidal ideation or urges to hurt themselves. So that's something that I specialize in, something that our practice is known for specializing in. And um, I've recently over the last year or two started to um, take more trainings and obtain certifications and become specialized in working with uh, clients who experience chronic pain. Yeah, so that's excellent. something I do a couple days a week. I also uh, do some forensic evaluations uh, through our local county family court. I push into schools and give presentations to middle school and high school students and their staff on um, 
team mental health and suicide prevention. And then I develop and deliver a variety of trainings on all of the topics that we discuss that I specialize in. It's an amazing story. It's it, BFF counseling. It, it's such a, you know, what do you want to be when you grow up kind of story? You're like, I'm going to start a business <laughs> with my best friend and we're going to help people, you know? So that's really cool. Was that a, a long-term plan or is that something that you guys decided later on? She was the childhood best friend of my now husband. And so oh, now we're nice. all best friends and um, we both sort of parallel to one another pursued the field of mental health. She's a licensed marriage and family therapist. And so she sort of tackles adults and couples in a way that I just do not. Um, and then I take the kids, the adolescents, the families. Um, so we sort of try and wrap around the community with our services. Um, and, you know, our besties to one another, we try and advocate for people to be besties with themselves. Um, and, hope that they sort of feel comfortable with us in this practice and this message that we convey. And uh, we built, you know, quite a community here in Beacon. Yeah, I know. It's amazing. And I'm, I'm glad we found each other and, and the reputation is definitely there. We've, we, we know of your work and you guys are doing amazing stuff there. I always ask a version of this question, but being a helper, being drawn to the helping profession, um, what, what got you into this? Because this, this is a tough gig and it takes a special type of person to dedicate their life to helping others. So what, what drew you into this crazy world? I actually started in college thinking I was going to be a teacher and I went to Boston University first year, first semester, they put us into a school, we student teach. And while I was sort of developing my science curriculum, I was also spending a lot of time sitting at the tables with the students and learning about their lives and their families and difficulties that might be impacting their learning or their just ability to feel comfortable or confident or safe. And I found myself more interested in those conversations, went ahead for my doctorate in clinical psychology and the rest is history. And were you always interested in the younger populations or is that also something that evolved over time? I've always wanted to work with children and their families. I'm not sure specifically what it was about that. I've been, um, I mean, I was young when I started and I think I felt more connected to that population and the idea of giving advice to adults as yeah. a 20-something-year-old professional felt intimidating and like... No. So I sort of stuck with um, children and then all of my experience continued to be with children. And then I felt so comfortable in that space. And then the idea of working with anyone other than that population felt uninteresting to me because I was like, these are my people. This is, I want to hang out with teenagers and they keep me on my toes and they're fresh and I have to learn new vocabulary all the time. And <laughs> yeah, yeah. so I wanted to, you know, be a person in their corner. Something that people listening or watching may not know is there, you know, not every therapist, not every psychologist, not every helper works across the board with anybody. You do have some people that are like, yeah, whoever comes through my door, I'll, I'll work with them. But most people do have a specialization or they do have a focus. Um, and something that I'll reveal for people is that adolescents um, and children are not always the favorite population for people to work with because it is very, very difficult. Um, it's emotionally taxing. It is a different situation than when a 48-year-old is in your office saying, I'm struggling with the following versus a six or an eight-year-old with very little resources, very little power is saying, 
I'm sad or I'm struggling. It's a hard job. Um, and so we always kind of liken uh, people who work with kids to like firemen, right? So everybody else kind of gets away from the problem. Whoa, this is out of control. This is scary. And you run towards the problem, you know? So um, did you find that true for your work as well? Like, has it been challenging and has it been taxing? And um, what are some of those challenges that you face in working with that specific population? It's not just working with the children. It's working with their whole family, their whole ecosystem, their teachers, their coaches, their grandparents, that all of that is involved in what impacts them on a day-to-day basis and what they might be having difficulties with and who can be supporting them and maybe who can be supporting them in different ways. So it's not just working with one client face in that moment. Um, it's, it's a lot more. And so, but I think the richness of that is so amazing. And to be able to kind of go deeper into a world like that is so interesting. Um, I will say though, to speak to your point, as I've continued to work in the field, I have slowly, you know, shifted my age range from, I used to see children, kindergarten age and um, through high school. And now I see more middle school, high school and young adult, you know, college, because I'm finding that in order to be, um, you know, really showing up for the younger clients, you need to have a particular space, play therapy, art therapy, like sand trays, things that they can just kind of demolish the office and take all the <laughs> on the blankets, the floor is lava and we're doing art and crafts and also, you, you know, you mentioned the the language difficulty. Maybe they don't have the vocabulary to express themselves. You need to be very creative. And I love that work. And also, I don't necessarily, I'm not equipped anymore. And so there are some really great resources and therapists and providers in that very um, young, you know, preschool, elementary age population that just have beautiful offices that are created for play and art. Um, that I will refer my much younger referrals to, but I still hang really comfortably with my middle school, high schoolers. I I love your point that you're making too about the ecosystem, right? So even helping somebody in that age, not only do the supports and the resources and the, the network of helpers, but even environmentally, like everything has to kind of be geared to facilitate healing and to facilitate communication in that population. So it's not just as easy as sticking a five-year-old in the chair or on the couch and saying, tell me what you're feeling today. You know, you have to find different avenues for them to express that um, because they don't have the language and the brain development to just sort of communicate verbally all the time. They may have to show you, you know, I mean, how many times have have we seen that where a kid pops up and is like, Hey, look how fast I am. And they like got to run around the room real fast or, you know, and they're telling us something and they're showing us something, but sometimes they got to show that with their body or, you know, tearing up your office. (laughs) (laughs) And, And I love your development, just getting to a place where you're like, Hey, I'm, I'm best here because early on, I think there's pressure to have all the answers for everybody. Right. And uh, you're like, no, I'm going to focus here. This is where I'm most effective and most comfortable. So, um, you know, you talk about learning new slang. So keeping up with teenagers, keeping up with adolescents, that's part of it. New technology, new slang. And as a parent myself and also someone who works with parents, we're always wondering like, what's going on with our kids? Like, how do I, how do I tap into like what's really happening in their world? So from your work, what's, what's going on with our kids? What are they facing? What are they feeling? Like, what are their challenges um, that they're seeing nowadays? Like, what are the things that are coming through your door uh, that you're kind of doing the most work on and just what's up with those guys right now? 
I mean, I do specialize in anxiety and depression. So that tends to be the types of kiddos that are coming in. That's what I'm seeing. And I think just in general, like the most broad answer to your question is stress are experiencing stress. I think humans are experiencing stress. We're coming off of a global pandemic. Kids have access with their phones and social media to things that they might not have had access to before. Their stress in terms of just making it through a regular school day, like feeling ready and able to eat breakfast that they need to function throughout their day, paying attention to and really absorbing information, whether there's learning difficulties that are taking place or there's just not interested in the class or there's a lack of motivation to kind of follow up and do that work. Cafeteria is super stressful. What to eat, who to sit with, who to talk to, what to talk about. It's every moment of every single day. We can think of it in terms of this like very broad spectrum of what's happening around them, but just their day-to-day experience is very stressful and the expectation is that they get up They're equipped with manners from the first moment that someone wakes them up, right? And throughout their day, then they get home, they're tired, they're having to do their homework, participate in family dinners, maybe they have sports or extracurricular activities. And then whether or not they're ready to go to sleep, they're expected to have a bedtime and sleep throughout the night seamlessly and wake up and do it all over again. It's a lot. It's a lot for them. So I think sometimes when we think about kids and what's going on with them, we sort of want to know the, this big picture thing, but I think it's it's actually more important to zoom in and kind of show up with them for the day and sort of meet them where they're at, see how they're feeling and gauge how you might be also better able to show up as a caregiver um, to support them through a tough morning coming off of maybe a not so great night's sleep or a really rough day the day before because they didn't do all in a test or they got into a fight with their best friend or they didn't eat the way that they should have, or they lost their soccer game. Like all of that trickles into even how they show up the next morning. So I think zooming in a little bit and paying attention to what's going on every single day and and not being afraid to ask them how they're doing, what's, what's, in their life I don't I'm sure kids will roll their eyes and be like nothing or, <laughs> yes it's fine. don't worry about it mom don't worry about it, dad it still matters I, they still feel it they're gonna be rude <laughs> and also they they do feel that engagement that attention so don't stop asking keep asking them what's going on and how they're doing and eventually they're gonna be like oh this person actually wants to know I think that's where it's really important that families implement a little bit of routine, right? So whether it's the, on the car ride home or the car ride to school and you say, you know, you ask the same questions or whatever. And yes, I mean, I have kids. You're going to get a lot of eye roll and you're going to get a lot of, what'd you learn in school today? Nothing. What happened today? Nothing. You know, don't worry about it because they're tired and they're stressed. And um, But I think if you can put some regular touch points in there that they can kind of count on and know are coming when it's time to share, when they actually do have something, they know there's going to be a space and a place for that to happen. Um, So uh, do you feel the same? Do you have, I mean, how do you, what are some specific examples of techniques or advice that you give families to help put those, those routines in place or to help put ritual into it? Like how do they create that space? What are some things they can actually do? 
Sure. Um, one of the things that we do is come together and whether that's um, depending on the age of the client, right? If they're a little bit younger, I might meet with them individually because I'm typically meeting with the kiddo individually because this is their time. So I'm going to sort of gauge what's difficult about the day from them. And then with their permission, I might have a parent only with the caregivers, um, see what's they're feeling is difficult about structure and then all come together with a plan from both parties and kind of agreements about this is what I feel comfortable talking about. These are hot spots. This is my secret code. If I pull on my ear, send them out or I'm leaving and I don't want to be a part of this conversation. We come together as a group and from the minute that the day starts, we kind of lay out, okay, what's the expectation of when wake up is? How are we going to do that? I think Breaking it into really small parts makes it very clear so that neither party can say, oh, I didn't understand. I was confused. I didn't realize because we've discussed it. This is how everyone's expected to wake up, whether it's you set your alarm and then you get up and start your day and I'll meet you downstairs for breakfast or I'm going to come in at this time and gently wake you up. Right. Snatch the blankets. Every family has their own way of functioning. And so I'm a little bit on the outside looking in. So to bring them all together to fill me in and include me, I can sort of make my way into it and a part of it and help break it down into specific things. So I'm going to ask very detailed questions, every aspect of what time are we waking up? What time are you expected to be downstairs? Are you eating breakfast? Let's have a conversation about this. What do you feel is acceptable for breakfast, both from the caregiver's perspective and from the child's perspective? Who's going to get that ready? Any question, even questions that seem silly, if you're doing this on your own and just sitting down at the table with the whole family, um, I would ask. The more consistent you can keep that, the easier it will be to sort of fall into that. Um, day-to-day routine. And if there's more than one child, even if only one child is having some difficulties or is in therapy, I would still bring the entire family together. We don't want to to feel sort of like the quote-unquote identified patient or different than this is, these are house rules. These are house expectations. Everyone should be expected to follow this routine. And it will be easier for everyone to sort of fall into the routine if everyone is participating. I think that's such a wonderful point and such a key point about everybody's participating because when you're dealing with a child, it's so easy, maybe not explicitly, but to drop them off at the therapist or to send them to therapy and and say, fix them, mm-hmm. right? Like, you know, they're the problem. We've identified it, you know, so because they're the one yelling or they're the one skipping school. So you have to go to therapy as if it's a punishment and you go fix your problems and then you come back to us and then we'll be ready for you. But what you have to understand is when your child's going to therapy, everybody's going to therapy. We are doing this and we are in this together. So uh, I really love that you're facilitating that in your work and saying like, nope, we're all in this together and we're going to figure this out. You know, I even use we typically when I'm communicating, even just with one child in front of me, like, okay, what are we going to do about this? <laughs> right, right, right. It's a collective. What do about this? It feels, it just like takes the pressure off of immediately. And you know, we always try to be positive. So we'll come back around. But when it 
when it doesn't work, because we've had these families, it's like they've seen three or four therapists or we've done this before and it didn't work. Or I'm sure you have clients that you're very frustrated because maybe the client's working, but the parents aren't keeping up or vice versa. The parents are doing everything and the kids aren't keeping up. Why, why doesn't it work? Like, what are the ways in which this can fall apart? Like, what are some of the common mistakes or common pitfalls to working with this population? The first thing I think of is that I'm not getting the whole picture. I can only work with what I know. And I say that <laughs> the whole family, if they'll come in and say, oh, I'm not feeling any better. And I, um, that leads me to, you know, kind of my next point also that they're not trying what we're suggesting. So maybe we've given a list of coping skills or different techniques and um, tricks to use to make home life better, to make school life better. And they've either written it off in the office in front of me or kind of yesed me in the moment, gone home, doing nothing that we discussed and then coming back and be like, yeah, I don't feel any better. Um, I'll say, okay, well, we can't expect change if we're not trying anything new. Um, And also I'm going to be very transparent that I might suggest something that won't work. Very likely to happen. Everybody is totally different. I've been working in this field for a long time. I wouldn't expect all of my ideas to work for every single person that's with me in the office. So I'll say to them, if I suggest something in the room and you feel like that's there's no chance that's going to work, I might push a little bit depending on our relationship and be like, like try it a couple of times and then come back and we'll talk about what made it difficult to try or what made it feel like it wasn't helpful what felt unhelpful about it. So we can sort of tweak it, but we can continue to try new things. I don't have a list of like three things that I try and they don't work, then sorry. (laughs) We're constantly learning new ways to, you know, meet kids where they're at. And um, so I think not being given the full picture, whether that's from a family member or from the child or from someone else that's involved. Um, so telling them again, I can only function and respond to what I know. So if I there's things that I don't know that you think are important for me to know, now would be a good time to share it. And if there are things that you're not telling me, let's figure out what the barrier is to that. Like, what can I do to make you feel like this is a space where you can talk about that thing? I call that thing the tough stuff. So okay. what's the tough, like, what is the tough stuff that we're not talking about? Um, or if we're referring to that's supporting to hurt yourself, things like that, I refer to as the tough stuff. So I'll say, okay, what is it about being here right now or having come here over the last so many weeks or months that makes it really hard or tough to talk about this stuff? Um, and usually kids especially, but people in general feel like they need permission to talk about tough stuff. Maybe it's not modeled for them. Um, Maybe they've seen it in movies or heard about friends that have tried and it's gone unsuccessful. And so they feel like it's not going to be responded to well, or maybe they're going to take me away and send me to a hospital or all these things that they think of in their mind. Um, And so trying to figure out what it is that's preventing them from sharing that information. That can be just a big part of the work before I even hear what's not being shared with me, just giving them permission to have feelings, talk about those feelings, invite people into those feelings, be supported by others in those feelings. Um, Also, if people aren't 
trying what we talk about. And then if people aren't being consistent, if people aren't being consistent in therapy, if people aren't being consistent in following the recommendations, if they're not being consistent in following the things that they know work for them. And that's, again, totally normal. I would never want anyone to feel like, oh, if I do this thing, it's wrong or it's bad. It's just another talking point to enter into and figure out. Even if you are having a hard time with something, it's not necessarily something that we can't talk about. It's in fact the best thing to be discussing because we can figure it out. Let's not kid ourselves. There's a lot of kids that come equipped with family secrets, right? That it's not even just like an accidental, like, I don't feel like I can talk about it. It's they really want to talk about things, but there's just things we don't talk about in this family, you know, and especially, you know, people get coached before they go to therapy because, you know, and we could talk a little bit about this too, where that line is between tough stuff and stuff you have to take action on, right? right. Because there's abuse and things like that. And so when you say, look, and we can talk about anything here and you're facilitating trust and you're cultivating safety, but there are lines that like, hey, I've got to get some other people involved here. So um, do you want to give kind of a 101 for families who may be thinking about coming to therapy or kids who may be dealing with family secrets? Um, what happens if it goes from tough stuff to safety stuff, if you will, or things I've got to make sure your safety is first? And, and what actually happens when that line gets crossed? So you want to kind of give a primer on that? As you were talking, I was thinking, oh, yeah, confidentiality, because I would tell someone who comes in with family secrets, remember what we discussed during our first meeting, right? Confidentiality. I always ask if they know what it means. Maybe they've had a therapist before. Maybe they haven't. Maybe that therapist hasn't gone over confidentiality with them. But the fact that what we talk about in here in this office stays here just between us, unless I have any reason to believe that you're a danger to yourself or someone else, right? Or if someone else is potentially posing a danger to you. And that's when I'm going to have to, you know, basically take steps to make sure that you're safe before you leave my office that day. So you bring up something like thoughts of wanting to hurt yourself, um, thoughts of wanting to hurt somebody else, or you're telling me that someone else is potentially making you feel unsafe, or you feel as dangerous to you, then we're going to take steps to ensure your safety before you leave. So if it's having thoughts of wanting to hurt yourself, I will do a full safety plan with them in session. And then I will bring in the caregivers who are outside in the waiting room. If they're, if I know they're not in the waiting room or they're in the car and they wait for the kiddo to come out, um, I'll say, you know, text whoever's outside and let them know that in five minutes, you know, call or text and let them know I'm going to need them to just join us. And similar to any family session that I would have, as I mentioned before, I will go over with the kiddo what I'm going to say, how I'm going to say it. We're going to come to an agreement about the way that it's communicated. It's communicated differently for every case. Some clients want to be in the room because they feel really uncomfortable with me with their caregivers sharing that information. Um, but they don't want to talk. So they're like, okay, we've agreed on how we're going to say it. We've come up with some kind of name of like, you know, Jamie, be quiet <laughs> or <laughs> vice versa. And then I have some clients who've asked to be outside in our waiting area, like our shared work area. So they can be present, even though they're not 
personally witnessing everything. But they were like, I don't want to be any part of this conversation. You please, thank you for doing it. I'll be out here. Um, I just don't want to be there when they find out this information. I'm probably remembering, probably part of my body is like back in those places because like what you're talking about is is, is self-harm or I'm, something's going on or I'm being bullied at school and the caregivers, we're going to need their help. And it's just it's just such a scary, terrifying moment for an 8-year-old, 10-year-old, 16-year-old, 48-year-old. It's just really hard to say I'm in trouble here and I need help, you know. And um, I just think those are really, really touchy and um, just sensitive and just really important conversations. So on one level, I'm sitting here feeling proud for your clients that are like, no, I want to talk about this. And then my, my heart is hurting for those ones that are like, this is so big, I can't even be in the room. Um, so I'm probably reacting to that a little bit. Yeah. And to your point, how big that they shared it in the first place, like they still crossed the first hurdle and said it out loud. Maybe this is the first time they've ever said it out loud. Maybe this is going to be the first time that their parents have ever heard that they've been experiencing this thing. Maybe it's not the first time that they've talked about it, but it's resurfaced or it's a little bit different. Uh, And so just having to share that information. And they know that because I've communicated that to them. And some clients will be like, whoa, 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 I didn't, you never said that. Yes. Yeah. It scares them. That conversation that we had, like our very first meeting, this is one of those times where, you know, we have to bring people in and I'll explain that it's just because it's my job to keep them safe. And I know that whoever is out there that I'm going to be bringing in wants the same for them. And I want to make sure everybody's on the same page so that in the few days in between when they see me next, because I'm not coming home with them, they're not necessarily going to have immediate access to me. I do different things every day of the week. I'm not necessarily on call. I'm not an on call therapist. Uh, I want to make sure that they have people at home who are aware of what's going on that can be a resource for them. If these thoughts or feelings or urges come up in the so many days between our next meeting, which if it's a high risk client will be every week. It's like your plan for the behaviors, right? Let's talk about this ahead of time. So when we're in a decent emotional state and we're all open to communication and learning so that when we're in a heightened emotional state, when that anxiety hits or I'm feeling unsafe, we already have the, the steps scripted, right? We know what right looks like. So now we just have to kind of execute the plan. And I think there's a sense of security that develops from that. Um, and I know every case is different, so this is a difficult question. But what do you, what do you do generally if the danger is one of those people in the car waiting to pick them up? What do you do when it's you know mom or dad or caregiver that is the person that is hurting me? How does that change the equation for you? Sure, as a mandated reporter, I have to alert child protective services. And just clarification, mandated reporters are people who have that exact obligation, right? If somebody's being abused or hurt in the home, we have to let the authorities know. Um, Is that every time? Do you assess a degree of severity? You know, dad hit me a month ago. Dad hits me every day. Or are you kind of like, hey, once we cross that line, that's it. We're going to get the authorities involved. Just curious about your approach and whether individual characteristics make a difference for people. Yeah, sure. That's a tough question. I think it, it does. It is a case by case. Example, I know from having called CPS so many times what um, will register as a report for them, something they will accept. So I know that there are certain situations where someone might be spanked 
or hit. And if there's no, it's just one time thing. It happened this many months ago. It hasn't happened again. There's no fear um, based on going back home or being with that parent. There was no marks or bruises left um, that the, um, the person who picks up when I call CPS will say, okay, well, that's not enough for us to check in or file a formal report, you know, um, we'll make a note of it. And so that's something that once that's mentioned, I will remind the client, you know, I'll do the full assessment, you know, when did this happen? Were there objects used? Any marks or bruises? Can I see where, um, it, it happened? Like whatever the point of contact was, can I see that area? If you're comfortable with that, just to make sure, because again, only function on what I know, and if there's some a bruise that's hidden, um, and I don't see it, and they're not telling me the truth. But if I ask that one question, there's a chance that they'll say, No, I don't feel comfortable with that, and then I'll ask more about that. Uh, also, some of these areas might feel private to a client, so they don't feel comfortable with me, and I want to respect those boundaries also. Um, but letting them know that this is something I'm going to be monitoring, this might be something that even if I don't call CPS, I'm still to suggest that we either bring in the family for a full family session so that I can talk about consequences, behavior management techniques, um, things that I can, that will then sort of pivot the trajectory of the type of conversations I'm having with the client and the family. Um, But it wouldn't automatically lead to a call for CPS, but it's now going to be just like if someone told me they were having suicidal ideation or or just self-harm, it will be something I let them know every session after that, I'm going to ask about it. I'm going to be for sure. So they don't have to worry about telling me or wondering if I'm going to ask about it and feeling some sort of way about it. Like, will she, won't she, she will. (laughs) Yeah. 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 And, and all from a place of safety, ensuring safety for sure. Because I want to make sure that they feel comfortable to express what's going on for them and they don't feel safe being with people who are taking care of them or in that home, then help them and that family. I don't want to frame it as, you know, I'm trying to separate you. Of course. The the goal is to push and support. And I'll, I'll reframe that sometimes as that's the goal of child protective services also, because I think some people fear that if, Child Protective Services becomes involved. That's it. They're removed from the home. They never return to their parents. And so we'll explain a little bit about you know what CPS intervention looks like. And I, I can support you on that too. I mean, I think that, um, you know, the, the reconstruction of the family and the reuniting of the family in a safe way is the goal. You know, it's there may be the immediate safety needs and there are times when removal is the best thing. Um, but it's always with a mind towards how do we take the necessary steps to bring this family back together. Um, and I've seen that quite a few times um, where even in tough cases where I'm kind of looking at it like, wow, this is this continues to happen. And I'm really worried for this child. But they're like, nope, we're going to bring the family in. We're going to continue to help. We're going to give this another try because that is the desire. I mean, when you're dealing with an overburdened social services system, frankly, there's not a lot of room for unlimited cases like this, right? right? There's not, there's not the magical farm where all the kids can just run and play free by the thousands, right? And so they need those resources. They need the families to step up and, and be the safe place. Before we go on, I want to say a few words about a new behavioral health. 
A new behavioral health is an outpatient provider of mental health and substance abuse services in Ohio and New Hampshire. That means that a new can successfully treat mental health and substance abuse issues or dual diagnosis if you're struggling with both. Their integrated approach allows for them to successfully address issues related to anxiety, depression, addiction, trauma, and really anything that stands between your life and the life you could be living. You really cannot bring them an issue that they have not successfully treated. They have also solved one of the biggest problems for people seeking help. They have a dedicated team waiting to hear from you at helpnow at anewbh.com. If you contact them today, within 24 hours, you will have heard back from, wait for this, a real live person and will also have your first appointment scheduled at that time. So how do you contact them? Well, if you're in Ohio or New Hampshire, you're probably close to one of their local locations. You're welcome to go in. If not, you can always reach them online at anewbh.com. And if you're interested in services for you or loved one, use that address, helpnow at anewbh.com. You've touched on it a couple of times, uh, what you would call tough stuff, what I think parents would call scary stuff with self-harm, suicide, risk, you know, suicide attempts, things like that. So um, are you are you seeing a lot of that in your practice? Has that increased? Like, what is your experience? Is this a, a pretty common concern? Like, are you seeing a lot of self-harm nowadays? Are you seeing the attempts go up? Um, yeah, this is happening. This is a, a regular thing for you? The attempts, not necessarily. Um, again, I it's hard for me to pinpoint the exact prevalence and the increase and decrease because it's one of my specialties. So people know I'm a person that can be told that information and it doesn't feel like, oh, this is not something we can talk about. Um, Oh, this is definitely something we should be talking about. (laughs) Um, I'm not sure if it feels like it's happening a lot because I'm just getting the calls from or actively experiencing it. I think there is just a general trend across middle schoolers and high schoolers of talking more openly about their mental health. My clients will say, oh yeah, lunch today, we were saying, well, my therapist said this and my therapist said that. And so that's something when I was in school, we were talking about that. So I think that that's where some of the prevalence might be increasing just because we're talking about it more. I'm sure a lot of these kiddos were thinking about these things and having difficulties with these things beforehand, but they couldn't talk about it or they didn't have language to talk about it or there weren't people to talk about it with. That's a classic paradox, right? Like, is there more ADD or are we getting better at finding ADD, right? And have better language for it. Um, so yeah, I, I knew I was going to be in front of Dr. Jamie. So I did a little homework right? and I was like, you know, I wanted to be prepared. And, you know, some of the studies that I, I read were just that there is definitely an increase. So, you know, I, I saw it as low as like 10%, eight to 10%. I saw it as high as over 30%, which doesn't really mean much on a family by family basis, right? Because you're worried about your kids and what's going on there. Um, are there, I mean, this is a little bit of an educational thing, but you've done trainings for a parent. Um, are there signs and symptoms that they really need to be on the alert for? Like, when is it a situation like, okay, this should have your attention. You may have a child at risk. You know, they may be hurting themselves. They may be thinking about suicide. Like, how does a parent assess that? How does a parent get a sense of that? Because it's hard to separate that from like, normal teenager stuff you know it's like is it just is it is she is she just 14 or is she in trouble right like how do they make that decision 
it's so difficult because every child presents differently. Um, so I wouldn't say that there's a singular list of things to notice. In my trainings, I will, you know, make broad statements such as noticing changes in appetite or sleep. If they're eating more, eating less, sleeping more, sleeping less, that's something to notice. Like, hmm, okay, what might be leading to this? Um, are they having more difficulties interpersonally? Are they getting into arguments with you as their caregivers more often? Are they having trouble with authority in general, teachers, coaches, just adults um, in a way that they weren't before? Or alternatively, are they withdrawing completely? Sort of like the polarized ends of the spectrum is when I would start to really touch base, like, hey, what what's going on? I'm noticing these things. Is everything okay? If they're having a hard time making it to school, if they're not doing their work that the way they, that they used to, um, they're having academic difficulties. Um, yeah. I mean, some in terms of self-harm, if they're spending more time in their room and mm-hmm. noticing that they're taking more towels or like hoarding paper towels or toilet paper or asking for a lot of band-aids or things like that, that might be they're engaging in any sort of self-harm. Hoodies in the summer, hoodies in the summer is something I look for a lot, right? So weather appropriate clothing, um, that's something, I don't know. I mean, again, it doesn't work for every kiddo, but no, you're right. you know, if, if, if it's 95 degrees out and they're in long pants and a hooded sweatshirt, why, what are they, what are they covering up? You know? And I liked your point a lot about it being individualized per child. And when parents ask me that question, um, I always try to defer and say, look, you're, you're, you're the expert on your child. You've known them since day one, right? I can give you a list, but you know your child. And so trust your instincts. If there's a deviation from they're just not my, you know, they're not acting like themselves and it's over an extended period of time, like trust that instinct, you know? When grad school, we learned the phrase, I'm the expert on children. You're the expert on your child. And I use that all the time. And so I think that's great. Um, And Part of the um, presentations and organization I work with, it's it's called James's Warriors. Um, We push into middle schools, high schools throughout the state of New York at this point. It's been a little focus. And we're also encouraging families just to engage their children in conversation, even if they don't identify anything specific, because hope is by talking if and when, right? They get to the point where they're having trouble with something, even if it's something small or if it's something as big as the tough stuff, right? right? There's already this um, foundation of communication that opens the door to go to them and talk about how they're feeling because it's been there is permission. They know that it's going to be supportive. They they know that there are people like me who can work with them once a week. They come from home. They meet with me. They go back home. They don't have to be separated from anybody. They can keep at school. They can keep their friends. Just sort of educating in general so that it doesn't get to a point where someone is trying to find these small little signs. Is this my kid? Is this something scary? Should I send them to a therapist? Should I call 911? By starting the conversation from scratch, it sort of allows for just the topic to be on the table. And so I think that was really important and sort of one of our driving, you know, 
forces of, you know, push into these schools, have conversation with parents, have conversation with teachers, have conversations with the students about what, um, what to do if they're feeling this way themselves or if they notice maybe a friend is feeling this way and they want to be supportive. You, you made the, the comment earlier about like how kids nowadays will sit around and say like, I talked to my therapist and I talked to my therapist and um, I'm certainly seeing this in my own. They, they know the psychobabble. They know the terms. They know they don't, they don't, they're not sad. They have depression. They're not nervous. They have anxiety, you know, uh, they'll throw PTSD out and things like that. Um, so the awareness piece of that, I think there's a little bit of fear, especially with like older generations that that's almost lending to like a self-fulfilling situation where like the more they talk about, it, the more likely it is. And there's also this perception of the younger generation that they are more fragile. Like that's kind of what like the snowflake talk and all that stuff like that is out there. So has that been your experience? Are you seeing that? Um, you know, and do you think it plays a role with social media and the more we talk about it, that it does become self-fulfilling or do you generally find these trends to be healthy that the more we talk about it, the more we discuss it, the better everybody's going to be. The latter. Because they have access to it anyway. If I'm not talking to them about it, someone else is talking to them about it. So at least I can come to the conversation as a professional, an expert in the field of psychology, an expert in the population of children, an expert in suicidal ideation and self-harm. And we can have a conversation together. They're not just being fed information from social media or from someone who had a horrible experience um, sharing the information or going to an inpatient treatment that didn't they didn't find helpful. Um, so I find that having the conversations and learning how to have them effectively is going to be the best way to talk about it. I think kids are stressed, have symptoms, even if they're minimal, right? That's you know, again, you don't have to use big clinical words of like depression and anxiety, but like human beings feel stressed, feel worried, feel sad, feel mad. Those are normal human emotions. When kids come in and they're like, oh, I got mad and I did this thing and I feel awful and I'm nervous to talk to you about it because I don't want you to be mad. I will remind them that I'd be more worried about them if they weren't experiencing this wide spectrum of emotions because that is normal. But don't talk about that. And so they don't feel permission to feel regular things. And so they hide them. And that suppression may be leading to more severe difficulties down the line. So by just talking about it and letting them know that everybody gets upset, that we can have a conversation about this and it doesn't have to be a crisis. It can just be talking about our feelings. And I don't necessarily think that equipping them with that information, of course, with the caveat that it's age appropriate. Like my school presentation is a little bit different than my high school presentation and different than some of the presentations we've done in colleges. And the student presentation is different than the parent presentation. We're tailoring the information, but um, we're showing, you know, we're definitely showing the parents what the children are getting from our presentations so that they can also then have more conversations about it. Yeah. And I think, I think it's interesting what gets lost in the whole snowflake fragile kid thing is, is the consideration that maybe life is tougher nowadays with the amount of information that is flying at them. And Oh, by the way, I never took two years off my life for a global pandemic. And Oh, by the way, parents are feeling more stressed and uh, you know, also pharmaceutical interventions are out there, which there's a lot of positivity to that, but they're also 
you know, kind of messing with people's chemicals and, you know, hormone levels. And there's an adjustment there. And oh, by the way, cyberbullying is out there. And it's just like, maybe life is just tougher right now. You know, maybe it's, I don't know, maybe we haven't given that much consideration that a, a seven-year-old now is dealing with more than a 27-year-old really had to deal with from an information standpoint and a challenges and an awareness standpoint, you know, one generation, two generations ago. Uh, it's really, really hard. So so turning that around a little bit, um, I guess, you know, we want to make some room for the positive part of the conversation as well. And I can tell from your your approach and your language, you're normalizing everything. We're talking about everything. Like, you, you definitely want to get into that. So instead of the, like, how do I know if there's a problem and what do I look out for? What are the positive interventions? Like, how do parents take action to not the classic, like, five steps you can do to create a healthy child, but what can they do to give their children the best shot? What can they do to create a home environment that is, you know, allows for that healthy development? Like, what is, what is the general and practical advice that, hey, if you want your kids to have the best opportunity to be, you know, well-rounded, be happy, not have these problems, what are things parents should be thinking about doing? I would say include them in the conversation. You don't have to let them make the decisions see what their perspective is, what they're having difficulties with in terms of the choices that you're giving them. And from those conversations, you can still present them with two choices, right? That's giving them a little bit of power. And also you've decided what two choices to give them. <laughs> so either way, you're satisfied with the choices. And now they're feeling, oh, I get to choose. So now they can decide and everybody is happy. Um, I think Again, just engaging with them, conversation, like talking with them. If they're watching something on YouTube or watching a movie, um, just, you know, you can ask, can I, can I sit with you? Hey, can I watch this? Hey, you want to tell me a little bit about what this is? You might be annoyed, but wait until it's over. Um, also, you can just sit quietly with them while they're doing it and notice again that you're engaging in what they're interested in and you're going to be learning about what they're interested in. So you can start conversations about this podcast that they're listening to or this makeup artist that they're really into or the movie that they're really looking forward to seeing. You can encourage them to take you to the movie. You can um, notice that they're watching a lot of sports and say, Oh, would you be interested in playing a sport yourself? Um, lends itself to a lot of different conversations by just participating in what they're doing. And it doesn't necessarily have to be active. I think that the misunderstanding sometimes is that you have to be on and with them and doing the right thing all the time. And I think that there's something so powerful to just being present, like being during homework. So if they need you, you're around, but not hovering, right? And monitoring those things and being available for support so that they notice and also so that it doesn't feel like hovering um, and that it doesn't feel a lot on you as the caregiver and it doesn't feel a lot on the child um, in terms of the relationship that you have with them. So I think being there is super powerful. And I don't think people think of that because they're thinking there is the right, there's the right thing, the best way to do this, to say this, to show up. And it, you just need to be around that's so your 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 presence 
is the present, right? Like that's the gift that you give your kids. And I know it's hard. You work a, a full day and you've got to like tend to the house, but um, it is interesting how just creating that time, um, they won't be as resistant, right? Because I think if you take the easy way out, let them be in the room, let the screen raise them. You know, it's, I, my, my house is quiet. Now I have time to do the things I need to do. So it feels like that's the easy way out. But over time, those are missed opportunities, right? And the other thing I like that you really said is to stay almost like non-judgmental because it's not this constant evaluation. And I will tell you from having worked with a lot of kids, when they smell judgment, they are gone. The relationship is over. If I get a sense that you're judging me, um, and they'll say that, they'll argue with their parents because she's always judging me, you know? Um, so replace judgment, I think, with curiosity, because if you're curious about something, you're in learner mode. Tell me more. Why do you like that? What do you like about that? Not you like that? What is this crazy thing you're looking at, right? So if we can get that judgment out of there and just remain curious, I think that's a nice invitation for the kids to to interact without that fear, you know, Um She's not judging me. Uh, early graduate school training, I thought I was going to work with really little kids, like not infants, but preschool kids and their parents and that relationship. That was like the parent-child relationship early on. That attachment was what I did my dissertation on and what I was really passionate about. And so I pursued parent-child interaction therapy, PCIT. And the um, big components of PCIT is referred to as special time and just a few minutes every day where the parent spends five minutes, literally five minutes of unguided, engaged, non-judgmental time with that particular child. And then again, if there's more than one child in the home, best to just do it with every child. Yeah. yeah. Really, not all at once. Um, and it's shown to make such a significant difference. Five minutes every day of just uninterrupted, undivided attention, just watching and engaging in what your child is doing, reflecting what they're saying, describing what they're doing. You don't have to do that as much with older children because to your point, they'll catch on to it right away. There's like a song voice that you know PCIT suggests like oh I really like the way that you've sat quietly and played if you said that to a middle schooler or high schooler they're gonna be like oh I really like the way that you sat quietly <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. stop being weird stop being weird mom it's yeah. been thrown in my face for sure like why are you talking like that <laughs> stop stop being weird <laughs> but um that I know it's you know design and develop specifically for younger children and their parents. But I, I think that lesson is can be generalized to, you know, elementary, middle school, and high school students as well. It's It can be as small as five minutes a day of this time. We're not asking you to give up your entire weekend or the entire evening when you come home from work. It's just minutes of time. And it could be getting ready for dinner. It could be part of something you're already doing, part of the nighttime routine, part of getting ready for dinner, part of like family dinner itself, um, part of homework time. That's just something special between you and them where to tap into the earlier conversation, it's kind of structured, it's expected, it's routine. And it's just promoting this really great relationship and setting this foundation for harder conversations that might occur in the future. Something that we do in our house that um, I'll share with everybody is we do a thing called favorites. All right. And so every night before 
they go to bed. We have our time where we share our favorites, okay? And, and it's evolved over the years, but the way it's structured now is they, they tell us two things they liked about their day, you know? Um, and it can be as big or as little as they want. I like that my friend was nice to me. I like that we had pizza for lunch. I like that, you know, mom left me alone and we, we laugh, you know? Um, then we share one thing that we're thankful for, you know, and everybody gets their turn. And then we share one thing that we're proud of, right? And we do this every night without fail, um, and some of my friends have adapted this, like they'll say like, okay, well, we're going to do one thing we like, one thing we're proud of, and, and one way we help somebody. I don't think the questions matter much. Um, we're kind of trying to foster a sense of gratitude. We're trying to foster a sense of appreciation and build this idea that even on your worst day, even if you've had a bad day, there's nuggets that you can find that you still liked about a bad day. But What's been amazing to me is we, we don't miss it unless we like all fall asleep watching a movie or something like that, you know. But um, the kids have come to us on multiple occasions where we're like, we're wiped and we're like, ah, we'll just skip it. And they're like, hey, it's time for favorites. It's time for favorites, right? And even if they grumble a couple of times, it has become part of the routine. And I think it's a nice kind of decompression technique that they can kind of, I know I've got that time no matter what. We're going to stop what we're doing and do that. Um, so I, that's when I talked about ritual and routine earlier on, that's kind of was thinking about like, that's one idea. There's a million, it could be anything, you know, but as long as it's consistent and the kids can count on it, um, I think that really facilitates a feeling of safety, um, consistency. I know what's going to happen and it kind of like lowers the bar. And what it's done for us too, is when they have hard times, we can go back to the things that they shared with us that they're proud of. And we can remind them like, yeah, I know you're struggling with this, but remember you were proud of this and you're proud of that and you're thankful for this. And it kind of helps balance the conversation. So there, there's a free one. You can take that and pass it on or, or use it wherever, but it's, it's done wonders for us. Yes. I love that. I've heard the roses and thorn example of that. Like what's something that felt really positive and something that felt a little bit hard about today. And what I also would bet on, and I'd be curious about their perspective on it is when you encourage an activity like that and you do it consistently, you are cognitively retraining the brain to pay attention for catch and remember those types of things. So when they weren't necessarily looking for catching, noticing, or remembering things that they were proud of, things that they were going to hold on to as favorites, things that they were grateful for, they their brains are doing that now. It's like a neural pathway that now exists for them because that's what happens when you create such a routine and you're forcing your thinking to, you know, redirect to such a thing. And so as they move through their daily lives, their brains are literally going to be paying attention to different things, more positive things because of that activity. I'm a big believer in you see what you look for, you know, and if you're scanning for the positive, you're going to see more positive and the inverse is true too. And that's, that's actually bled over into our business. So at a new behavioral health, every, every supervision or coaching session and things like that begins with the same question, which is what's working well. We always start that. So you're sitting down and you think about the typical like employee employer interaction and they're, they're, they're ticked off and they're, ah, I'm in the supervisor's office. This is going to be, uh, and it's like, well, listen, before we get into this, I just want to get a sense of what's going on with you. So give me something from the last week or last month. So like, what, what do you think is working well around here? And then we'll get into the gripes and then we'll get into the complaints and things like that. But I think it's really important to kind of level set with 
there's some good things happening here and there's some positive things that I've noticed. And then we can ha- at least have something to build on, you know, um, the, the roses and thorns example is hilarious. We, we tried that early on. And what I found is, is that the roses got about 10 seconds and the thorns, <laughs> <laughs> and the thorns got about five minutes. It's like, oh, you know, <laughs> it, it became festivus every night. Like here's how, here's how life has disappointed me today. You know, and so I can remember talking with my wife, like, we're doing a little too much of the something I like, something I didn't. Let's just wipe it out and, and focus here. So um, let me ask you this. We're, we're getting close on time. I want to be respectful of your time as well. Um, are there resources, like if parents want to learn more about, you know, the things that you're working on, you're doing this every day, but are there typical books that you recommend? Are there websites? Like, where would you point parents in terms of equipping them with these resources um, that they might be looking for just to support their children better or dealing with anxiety or any of the issues we talked about today, um, are there some common resources that you like to recommend that maybe parents can take advantage of? It again depends on what exactly is going on for of course. The and their family. Um, some early uh, favorites that I've kind of picked up and stuck with is how to behave so your children will too. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Smart but scattered. Um, so that's good for like executive functioning, um, ADHD sort of difficulties. Mm-hmm. One is more just for like general understanding of behavior and behavior management and consequences and just being appropriate as a caregiver and what to expect from your child and how to meet them where they're at. Um, those are two books that I really like. Um, I, if they're more interested in, in us and our work and what we're doing, they can find us at BFF Therapy, um, the website, bfftherapy.com. We have an Instagram that's open to the public. So we're posting ourselves, our thoughts, our tips and tricks constantly. Um, typically, if I'm meeting with a client and we come up with something together and it's a good idea, I'll sort of post a story about it for anyone else to use it, but also as a reminder to the client who's left and has also since forgotten in the next hour, like, what did we talk about? They can go to our Instagram and be like, oh yeah, (laughs) that's what we talked about. Um, and different resources. Um, yeah, if they're looking for support, I think psychology today is a great resource to find practitioners in the area that you're living. You can sort of determine it by, um, radius, distance, how far you want to go. They're specializing in. Let's talk about that real quick before, I mean, we're kind of wrapping up, but that decision of when to seek help, right? So it doesn't have to be suicide specific or self-harm or anxiety specific. But I think, I think most parents face that question at some point in the life cycle. You know, it's like, Hey, something's up. I I think they need help. I think when, when should they like, or how should they make that decision of when to involve a therapist or reach out for external help? Sure. I mean, if they have that gut feeling to your earlier point and my grad school mantra, right? Like you're the expert on your kid. If you're feeling like something is up, it's worth just calling a provider. Um, Most of us, me included, will offer sort of a free consultation. And so someone might find me on psychology today or through one of my trainings or our Instagram and, um, reach out and say, Hey, I have a kiddo who's going through this. What do you think? And I'll say, Oh, it sounds like we'd be a good fit or, Oh, I'm not sure. Like, are they meeting with a school psychologist, a school counselor? Is it something where you're feeling like they need a little bit of extra support 
outside of the home? Are you feeling like home-based services are better? I don't, you know, the home. Every family has different needs. So I think um, not being afraid of giving a provider a call and if someone has, you know, you feel something's going on and you've sort of connected. Um, most of us will give um, you a brief consultation, talk with you a little bit about if they feel like they're a good fit. I always tell families um, who I am, a little bit about me, the work that I do, and that I would recommend they also include the client in of I'm thinking that we should meet with a therapist, right? That we again, like, I think you should go to a therapist. I think you should go to therapy. You need therapy. Approach it as a we. I'm feeling like we would probably just benefit from some extra support. I'm wondering if this person might be a good fit. I spoke with her. She has some availability at a time that works for you. Here's her Instagram. Here's her website. Check her out. If you feel like she's a person that you're interested in meeting. She's happy to make some referrals. And then at the end of the session, she's going to check in with you about how you felt. And I will tell both the parent and the child that during the first intake beforehand and during the actual intake at the end of today's session, I'm going to spend some time one-on-one with the kiddo and see how they're feeling about me. And if they want to continue with me, then that's great. That's a choice they get to make. And if they don't, I want them to know that they can have that conversation. I'm going to ask them about it. I'm asking everyone that I meet that same question, and I'm not going to be offended. Supporting them by finding them another provider, I'm happy to do that. Yeah, it's about it's about fit, and I I like the low the low pressure and trust your instincts approach there because it seems like mental health, behavioral health, whatever is is one of those weird disciplines where people, the general public, like they almost ask themselves this question of like, is it bad enough to get help, right? Like any of the physical ailments, when you start to have symptoms, you go see a doctor or you go get it checked out. And if nothing's going on, you go, okay, cool. And you go home. But it's like, there's this line in mental health where it's like, oh, is it really bad enough that I have to go to a therapist? And I always kind of stress like, like you just did, it's not a lifelong commitment. Go get checked out. If they say you're good, you're, it's it's a happy day. Great. You're good. You're, I think you got to control of this. But why but why not get assessed? Why not get a sense of that and, and see what's going on from a professional's perspective? Because it isn't a lifelong commitment. It isn't even a it isn't even a two-session commitment. Go get checked out. <laughs> and if you're good, you're good. And you've got good news, you know. So I love that approach to that. So yeah. I have certainly had clients. I mean, it's gotten to the point with some families where they've called and we've talked and be like, mm, I don't know. I don't not sure it warrants this sort of follow-up, but if you want to come in and have a conversation and maybe once they get in, they feel like, oh, this could be kind of nice to just have a non-judgmental, objective third party listen to me. <laughs> like, who doesn't want that? Um, they kind of get in there and like, oh, this could be kind of nice. This person's kind of cool. I like this office. So, um, you know, bring them in. I've certainly had intakes where at the end of the session – I've done a full assessment. I've talked with the client. We've had the conversation in there. Whether or not it's just because they're not ready, um, something different, but they're just like, yeah, I don't, I'm not interested. I was told on the way here, I'm, I was coming here. Oh, it's always nice. Yeah. I'm not interested in pursuing this. I don't think I need therapy. I don't think it'll be helpful for me. And I'll be like, okay, cool. I, you want to share that with who's whoever's outside? Let's bring them in. And I'll say, listen, I did the assessment. I don't have any, you know, safety concerns. 
they're feeling like at this point, they're not ready for therapy. They're not interested in pursuing therapy. And I find that when a person person is communicating that to me, scheduling future sessions right away isn't going to be beneficial for anybody, really. You know, if you change your mind in three days, in three weeks, in three months, give me a call. You can slide right in. Um, but but it doesn't have to be next week, and that's okay. Um, so again, normalizing that for people because sometimes just having it checked out is what you need to sort of feel at peace, and that's okay too. And nothing wrong with trying that out. So when the day comes, if the day comes, you're already you're already comfortable with the first step, and you're ready to take that second step. So hey, you're halfway there. That's great. You're halfway there. Yeah, that's great. Dr. Jamie, I appreciate your time so much. Thank you so much. People don't really realize that, uh, you know, we're, we're both working. We're, we're sneaking this in at the end of the day. I'm sure there's other things you could be doing. So I appreciate you stopping by and sharing your insight. I think what you've shared is going to help a lot of people. And um, again, give us your website again. If people want to find you, it's it's BFF. Is, is that the address? BFFtherapy.com bfftherapy.com. So, and we'll absolutely have Leo put that in the show notes and make sure that they can find you and just click below. I'm supposed to do this. I don't know how the internet works. They're like, point down here and you can click below, check the link. Yeah. And and do all that stuff. (laughs) (laughs) You're younger than me. So you know how this works. So no, but, but thank you so much. I really appreciate you. And I want to thank you again for your time. Um, And for all of you listening at home, I mean, like, like Dr. Jamie's talking about, if there's anything going on and your instincts are telling you, Hey, there might be something, you know, to talk about here. Uh, if you're in New York, Dr. Jamie, take care of you. You've got the links, but if you're in Ohio or New Hampshire, I want to give a shout out to our sponsors, uh, a new behavioral health. We're talking psychiatrists. We're talking therapists. We're talking medical support, case management, um, on the mental health and the substance abuse side. Uh, worst case scenario, uh, you get the help that you need. Best case scenario, you come see us once, just like Dr. Jamie, um, you get a clean bill of health and you can move on with some strategies that make life, you know, a little bit better. Um, so you can always find them at anewbh.com. And again, that's in Ohio and New Hampshire. Uh, if you want to reach out for support, help now at anewbh.com. So final thanks to Leo. Uh, we didn't have producer Ian today. We've got producer producer Leo. So we've got a production team. So thank you, Leo. Great job. And again, final thanks to you, Dr. Jamie. I appreciate you so much. So um, thank you guys again. Always the biggest thanks to the people watching. Uh, Time is your most valuable resource. We appreciate you spending a little bit of it with us. Um, And until next time, uh, take care of yourself and take care of each other. Thank you very much. Hey, guys. Although Through Help and Back is an excellent podcast with a lot of great ideas, I do want to let you know that in no way is Through Help and Back expected to be perceived as or relied upon in any way as specific medical advice or mental health advice for you personally. The information provided through Through Help and Back on our website or our podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment that can be provided by your own providers. Do not use our content in lieu of professional advice given by qualified medical professionals and do not disregard professional medical advice or delay seeking professional advice because of the information you have read on our website, heard on our podcast, or otherwise received from us. Although we love discussing issues related to healthcare, mental health, and addiction, we are not providing direct healthcare, mental health care, medical, or nutrition therapy services. We're not attempting to diagnose, treat, prevent, or cure in any manner whatsoever any physical or psychological ailment, any mental or emotional issue, disease, or condition. We are not giving you specific medical, psychological, or religious advice whatsoever. 
please take care of yourself and take care of others as you always seek the advice of your own medical providers and your own mental health providers regarding any questions or concerns you have about your specific health or before implementing any recommendations or suggestions from us. These are ideas that have worked for other people. We think it's important to share them. We do not guarantee that they will work for you specifically. Do not stop taking any medications without speaking to your physician nurse practitioner, physician assistant, mental health provider, or any other healthcare or medical professional. And if you have or suspect that you have a medical or mental health issue, contact your own healthcare provider promptly. Also, one last thing, if you know or suspect that you are currently experiencing a crisis, it is absolutely imperative that you seek the advice of your doctor or other emergency healthcare services prior to ever thinking about using our content. We love the conversations. We're glad you're stopping by. We hope you take a lot from the content. But again, for your specific individual medical situation, please always seek quality personal care from your own providers. Do not let this uh, information or this advice stand on its own. Thanks so much for listening.